Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 10th, 2016, and this is episode 1741 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, you can just throw the schedule out the window of what's supposed to happen on a Thursday show. So I just got back from California from Permaculture Voices 3. It was a great conference followed by an unfortunate mishap. Uh, that made the extra days we took not quite as vacation-y as I'd want them to be. I actually hurt my knee uh, pretty damn good, too, uh, Sunday evening. Uh, I'll tell you more about that and some of the things it's making me think of from a preparedness standpoint in just a minute. Uh, before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey guy, the actual one, the only Berkey guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting, and if there's a problem, it gets corrected fast and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was well, the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods, at his website, directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey guy Gleason, directive, and the number's 21, followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff, the Berkey guy Gleason. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you. And if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. 
That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership, 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. And with that knocked out, I want to say, what, well, what is today's show going to be? It's going to be a listener feedback show. So this is going to be a show where you know I just take your emails and respond to them. Kind of the easiest thing for me to do on my first day back. And uh, before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and... Uh, Remind you about the Member Support Brigade. If you like the work we do here, you can help support the show at only about 18.3 cents per episode when you do the math. And you can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members there. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have uh, three for you today. Uh, one is Pamela's Virtue and the Gift of Fear. That's actually about the first ever true novels ever. Then I have The Negro Conspiracy and the Irish Famine. Uh, interesting read, and I have a famous backstabber is born. I'm going to read that one because I have an interesting question for you as my take on it after I read Alex's take. So Alex Shrugged, of course, has these for us at tspwiki.com along with all the other great information at the Survival, Self-Sufficiency, and History Wiki, tspwiki.com. Benedict Arnold is born in Connecticut. He will become one of the bravest, competent, and most trusted generals in the American Revolution. He will stand side by side with Ethan Allen at the assault on Fort Ticonderoga and then resign his commission over a disagreement. His name will come to mean the very essence of betrayal when he attempts to sell Fort West Point to the British. George Washington's secret six spy ring will uncover his scheme before it goes too far. His plan will include capturing Alexander Hamilton and George Washington as they arrive at West Point. But Benedict Arnold will escape for a while. Arnold will work for the British forces against his fellow Americans. He will die years later in England, suffering from the gout. Although he will have a stately funeral and resting place, his body will be exhumed for a church to make renovations. The clerical heir will direct his body to a mass grave. His final resting place will be unmarked and his memory unlamented. My take by Alex Shrug. So why would he do it? Benedict Arnold was a man of ability driven by a need for praise. When he did not get what he thought he deserved, he felt betrayed and in turn betrayed others. But that is only a partial explanation. Benedict Arnold was a major general of the Continental Army. That was a substantial recognition of his abilities. Perhaps more relevant was that he married his second wife, Perry Shippen, a crown loyalist. She was a looker, a socialite and threw parties on a grand scale that put Benedict deep in debt. 
I'm not blaming his wife. Benedict was an adult after all. But in his effort to please her, he exceeded his finite resources. It's sometimes the small things that trip us up, a need for praise, a desire to look better than we really are. And when the bill comes, we lie just a little. Then we lie more, and before we know it, we are selling little bits of our soul. I completely agree with that, but here's what I'd like to point out. We view Benedict Arnold as a traitor because we won the war and he went from our side to the other side. Arnold probably was a traitor that deserves the the, the lasting uh, hatred of, uh, of history, probably. Um, I've actually never looked deep into the Benedict Arnold story. I've, it's been one of those things that was kind of fed to me, you know, as regurgitated uh, bird food to the baby bird in school, and just Benedict Arnold's a traitor, and yes, he's a horrible, horrible human being, and he deserves the misery that came later in his life. Okay, fine. But I have to ask you, when someone switches sides in a conflict... And we are the, the opposer in the conflict, and they switch to our side. And they assist us in fighting our enemy. Do we consider them a traitor? That's an interesting one, isn't it? Now, I think it's pretty clear that if you're talking about Nazi Germany exterminating millions of people, that there's a pretty good you know, estimation of who's good and who's evil. But the... American Revolution was quite subjective. On, on one hand, we had our founding fathers and the founding warriors of our nation fighting for independence and freedom from the crown of Great Britain, but it wasn't like there was wholesale agreement on everybody. That there, you know, this whole loyalist crown thing, there was lots of those running around in the colonies during the war. And it wasn't like the, the King of England was just randomly putting people to death or something like that. I mean, I'm not making a case for England in this. I'm just saying... This is not the cut-and-dry, evil-versus-good conflict. There were compelling reasons that people felt that they needed to side on one or the other in many instances. So were there any British officers that looked at the whole thing and then changed what their view on the situation and crossed the line and aided us during the American Revolution? I don't know the answer to that question. But I do know this. If so, we don't view them as traitors. But I bet the British do, even to this day. So the question is, is one a traitor because one changes one's mind if one's moral consciousness is why they change their mind? Does that make them a traitor? Especially if someone is intrinsically loyal, intrinsically faithful, but yet realizes, I'm on the wrong side of this. This is morally wrong, the side that I'm on. And in this conflict, my only choices are to continue to be morally wrong, to desert, or to step into the other side and take up the fight now that I've learned new information. It's just something to think about. Again, it's not a defense of Benedict Arnold, but it is a call for us to think when someone's labeled hero or traitor or success or failure to if we are really going to base decisions in our life based on that to dig a little bit deeper into it and find out the rest of the story. My take by Jack Spierko. Next up we have the uh, Bob Wells plant of the week. Every week Bob Wells sends us a, uh, a plant that we can grow in our own backyard to help feed ourselves long term, a perennial plant. Uh, this week I'm doing it on Thursday instead of Tuesday because, well, I wasn't here Tuesday. 
Uh, Bob Wells' plan of the week this week is the Bell of Georgia Peach. It's adaptable from Zone 5 to Zone 8. The Bell of Georgia Peach is an old-time favorite that produces brilliant red flowers each spring and large fruit in late August. The peaches are very firm and highly flavored with creamy white freestone flesh tinged with red. While excellent for fresh eating, the fruit is widely used for desserts and canning as well. It's self-fruitful and requires only 800 chill hours. Bob Wells specializes in edible landscape, including fruit trees, berry plants, vine fruit, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty fruit trees. Find this plant more at bobwellsnursery.com. Peaches are one of those things that I think everybody should be growing at least a, a tree or two of. They're a very versatile fruit. They're, they're exceptional for fresh eating, canning, desserts. They're actually really good, good grilled, and especially the freestone varieties. Freestone just means that when I cut it and pull it, the, the stone comes out freely instead of a bunch of the peach sticking to it. You take those things, and you just throw them, flesh slide down on the grill, and just grill them. There's all kinds of things you can use, like Italian cream cheese and stuff like that added to them, or baste them with different uh, coatings and stuff. But even just plain grilled peaches are actually kind of phenomenally good. You just don't want to go too long. You don't want to go to the point where they get mushy. You want to go just to the point where the sugars begin to come out and they begin to caramelize a little bit. It's an outstanding dessert. It's fresh. No sugar required. No adjuncts required. Give that a try sometime. And again, use a, a freestone uh, peach when you do that. A lot of other stone fruits work well for that if they're freestone as well. You can do it with something that's clingstone. It just takes a little bit more effort, a little bit more work. All right, with that, let's get into the uh, main topic of today's show. So I want to start out with my knee injury. And it's, I, I'm hoping that within a couple weeks, I may be not back 100%, but I'm hoping it's not something I'm going to end up having to have some kind of surgery for because it was not a minor thing. Uh, I was playing around with somebody, doing some martial arts demonstrating. Never a good idea late at night and, and when drinking. But knowing that, I went very, very safe, and I was demonstrating something I've done hundreds of times where you have somebody try to basically push you to down, push you to the ground from behind, and you do this very passive resistance thing, and you let your body flex, and you don't really fight back, and they just have, they can't really get you down. And again, I've done this hundreds of times. Did it three times that night in a row. First two worked out just fine. Third time he did it was going to be the last time. Second should have been the last time. And I slipped. And when I slipped, I did the one thing you're not supposed to. I, I, I tensed. And actually, he stopped. A couple seconds went by. And then amazing pain in my knee. And it shook and I couldn't bear my weight on it. And I uh, limped around the hotel and around the uh, place for the next few days on crutches. I uh, had a ride home on an airplane yesterday uh, where we used a wheelchair at the airport. Not mainly because I couldn't walk, but because... I would have been very slow getting from place to place, and I wanted to be off the knee. That felt kind of um, humbling to be wheeled through a, a, an airport where you look around and everybody else being wheeled around in a wheelchair is like, you know, somebody that's like 98 years old or something like that. Um, so you learn a little bit of a humbleness, and you learn to like not do certain things. Like if I could go back and not do that, I would. But I also try to look at it from a standpoint of, okay, what is it going to do for you going forward, other than not doing stupid shit like that when you're drinking in a bar with a bunch of guys again? Um, well, one of the things we realized by being out there is, okay, I was immobile for a couple days. I really could not walk or put any weight on my knee. So Dorothy took an Uber, went to Walgreens, got a set of crutches and a knee brace, and that at least would enable me to you know, go to the bathroom, take a, a walk down the hallway to the restaurant, the hotel, and get something to eat. And by Tuesday, I guess it was, we had a, a sailboat ride. Then I was able to walk almost a mile around the the the, uh, the water course to get to and to get on the sailboat, I'm able to get on the sailboat, get off the sailboat. But it would have been very difficult had we not gone out and got those crutches and that knee brace. 
And I realize we keep some stuff like that as part of our preps here at home, but not, you know, like I think after this experience, I'd say that a knee brace, an elbow brace, a wrist brace, an ankle brace, a set of crutches, and a cane. Like, I wouldn't go out and buy all that tomorrow, but as you're building out your your preps for medical emergencies, like, these are common sense preps because if you end up in a situation, let's say um, we had an ice storm and the uh, you can't get out to go get any materials or supplies and one member of the family does what I did to their knee on ice, which is not a stretch of the imagination by any means, and is now immobile, you've got a, an additional family member that's a burden. Not only are they not doing the things they normally would do, but they can't just you know see to themselves. So I think those things should be added to everybody's preps. That's, that's one thing I think uh, you definitely could take from this. The next thing is, so this was a pretty nasty knee twist. Um, though there was no pop, there was no feeling of a tear. In fact, it was a pressure release, everything's okay, oh my god, it hurts, right? So hopefully I haven't torn any ligaments or anything like that, but, um, and I, the, the upside is every day is better, like it still hurts, but I, I mean, I'm not sitting here, actually sitting down or, or sitting on the couch or resting my leg, it, there's very little pain, but when I go to move it, there's certain ways that it still hurts, um, so hopefully it's not a traumatic injury, and I've actually put off going to the doctor, and everybody's freaking out. Oh, my God, you go to the doctor. Well, if I go to the doctor, what they're going to say is, well, we don't really know, so uh, let's do an MRI. And they'll do an MRI, and they'll say, we don't really know, so to be safe, because uh, there's some movement there, let's go ahead and do let's scope it and determine whether or not we need to do surgery. And, of course, the result will always be, almost 100% of the time, yes, we should do surgery, because people like to do surgery and make money. So since that's the case, and since I'm not an idiot and I'm not going to try to run a marathon the way that it is right now, I'm taking the approach of using Comfrey Sav. Oh, yes, I know that's crazy, right? Um, wearing my knee brace, icing my knee a few times a day, being very ginger uh, with how I use my, my knee, and seeing what will another five days do to recovery. And if I begin to get recovery, what I've committed to is to uh, setting up my own level of basically rehabilitation training with my knee, very slow, very soft, uh, wearing a brace even if I feel I don't need it for at least 60 days because I do believe that my biggest risk right now isn't what's wrong but re-injury and further injury uh, and taking it easy even after that. So the bad thing for me with this is this really sets back my plans this spring. So I'm kind of giving you guys a heads up that my little work with Jack weekends, I might put a few more of them out starting next weekend that will really be more of a call for, hey, come you know, come help me out to get through all this crap. Uh, that I, that I'm kind of behind the power curve in a big way with right now. Um, please don't worry about it. Please don't send me a four and a half page email telling me why I should go get surgery or whatever. And, uh, I'm a big boy. I know what I'm doing. I've been through injuries like this before. Um, and I, I've, I've always been able to get through them. And I think it makes sense to at least give your body an, a, a chance to heal itself. So we'll also see how that goes and I'll report my progress on that. But I can tell you that today, I can get up and walk from my room out to the, the living room and walk around wearing my knee brace without using a crutch or even a cane. I've taken a kind of using a single crutch most of the time anyway just to keep the weight off the knee. The day that I did it, I couldn't stand. And just moving my leg in bed, like if it, if it snugged, you know, if it grabbed any kind of lateral movement, it just was infuriatingly painful. Uh, so it does seem to be on the mend. So I just want to let you guys know that and... Don't worry about Jack. Again, I'm going to take care of myself and do the right thing for myself and my family. But um, I do believe in the healing power of herbs, and I do believe unless there's actually a serious tear, uh, that using something like comfrey and some other herbs 
as a as a bomb out applied several times a day. Uh, we'll speed that healing, and I'll I'll let you know how it works out. As for a control group, I'm not going to jack my other knee up just so I can test this in between the two. But um, most people know injuries to the knee take a long time to recover from. So if I'm able to just kind of walk around with no pain two weeks from now, we'll call it a win for me. And if it's the conferee that helped, then so be it. I guess the last thing I want to talk about with this, though, before I move on, is how for granted we take our ability to do things. Uh, you know, walking around the property today, I fed the ducks their fodder, and uh, I put them out in the field and redid their fodder. And that was about it. That was about all I could do, um, not just from a standpoint of not wanting to hurt myself, but not wanting to hurt myself more, like a responsibility to, uh, to, 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 to see to my own recovery, right? To not do something stupid to prove that I could and actually, again, re-injure and further injure the knee. And, you know, to, to, to sit in an airport and watch people just walking by you, walking by you, walking by you and think, yeah, I'm the guy that usually walks by the person with the wheelchair and unless they like, they look like they're like laid up for the rest of their life, doesn't really, really even notice it. Like a, a young guy like me sitting there with a pair of crutches, obviously he can get up and walk, obviously he's got an injury, he'll recover, whatever. And, and not realizing a lot of times how serious it is to have an injury that's incapacitating even for a short period of time. I've been through this before. I had an injury, same leg, where I really ripped my, my hamstring. Uh, and that took like a, a week and a half to recover from to the point where I could just move around happily again and, and several more months to where I felt safe, you know, running. I've also had two times on that. It seems like it's always the right leg for me that takes a beating where I rolled my ankle. Uh, I had one where, I mean, it was, I, I couldn't believe the ankle didn't break. And in all those things, you kind of get this appreciation for, how lucky you are to be in good health and be able to move around. And I think that we need to think about that when we're taking risks. Uh, again, the activity that actually caused this was so low risk. Again, something I'd probably done a hundred times in my life with, with no pain, no injury, no nothing. But it's just that one freak thing. And like, was there any real compelling reason for me to do that? No other than I like to teach. Well, I probably don't need to be teaching things like that, especially <laughs> when alcohol is involved. So, But I'm even saying other things like, oh, I can just jump over that ditch or whatever. Well, do you need to? Is it really worth it? Uh, if you roll your ankle, what are the consequences of just a week of not really being able to bear your own weight and then having to have that time down from work or your business or your homestead or what have you? So I guess my call is to be thoughtful of the risks that we take with our, our physical injuries and to be a little bit more aware, and sometimes things that seem like they're over-the-top safety police stuff, and trust me, there's over-top safety police stuff. It exists. But sometimes the stuff that seems like it is isn't. It's just common sense. So make sure you're doing what you can to stay safe out there and take care of yourselves. I know I've kind of thrown this to be a listener feedback show, but there's also just going to be some straight-up updates like we just went through with kind of what's going on with me now. And that I did that also so you understand like there's going to be less video in the next week or two because walk-arounds are not going to be very convenient for me to do. But we'll be putting some stuff out. Dorothy and I are going to do a video today on like handling eggs. Anyway, I'm going to video it. She's going to actually be on camera, but she's just going to have her hands there. That's how I got her to agree to do the video, guys. You guys should think, like, why doesn't Jack put Dorothy on video and on the air and whatever? Uh, dude, if you can convince her to do it, go for it. I, I do, I know my wife and I only push so hard and I definitely pick my battles. This is one I'm not willing to fight with rigor. I just basically say, 
uh, if you want to do this, we'll do this. And if she says yes, I'm like, yes. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. There is the video of her and Barb pushing the giant water tank. That was probably the best one ever. Anyway, um, what I want to talk to you about now, another update on the property, is my bees. So two years ago, my bee mentor, Jason, came and brought these three nukes of these beautiful little blonde bees that were just the nicest bees you, you would ever find. Very reluctant to sting. Um, bees that when they would swarm on the box in the heat of the summer and Jason would come over and you wanted to see if, you know, are they actually swarming? Is there a queen in there? Or are they just kind of piling up on the front porch because it's hot in the box? He would take bare hands and he would pick up handfuls of bees and just set them on the, the, the top of the box. Bees that I could go out there and even I, the novice that I am, pull the top off, pull who frames out, look at them. Everybody's happy. Bees that I would go feed with no protective gear whatsoever or, you know, just use a little bit of the weed eater around the area with no protection and the bees were fine. Well, I just had a, a workshop where we worked on the aviary and a couple students got stung, but, you know, we're working right next to it. I'm thinking maybe, and I'm, I was telling Jason, I just feel like they've been a little bit more aggressive lately than the normal. So Jason comes Friday, uh, last week, it was either Friday or Saturday. We open the beehives, or he opens the beehives because I was busy doing other things. And I was trying to clean out one of my garden ponds, and I had to vacate the garden pond that's like 100 yards away from the beehive because they started literally attacking me. Charlie Daniels, the dog, he got stung at least a dozen times, if not more. Um, they're hot now, very, very hot. And my beautiful little blonde bees are now like really dark-colored black bees. And what happened was last year when you know they requeened themselves... And swarms left. Uh, the, the queen, when she flew, she bred with bees from the local population, and the genetics were altered. So I now have really mean bees. And how mean? Um, about an hour after this occurred, an hour after the boxes were all closed up and the bees were back in their hive and left alone, an hour, hundreds of yards from the hive, up in our front pasture, We were trying to clean out buckets, and bees were attacking us. They were pissed. So they got to get changed out. The genetics got to go. These queens got to get squished. So what Chase and I decided to do was move the bees from the northeast corner over by the neighbors to the southeast corner over by the, the, the vacant field behind the pond and point them into the vacant field of abandoned crap so that they leave the hive. So even people over there, they're not in a flyway. And we were going to go from... I had three hives. I lost a hive, and we're down to two. We're going to go from two to six, and here's why. In spite of the fact that I got mean bees, by feeding them like crazy through the winter, I have two hives that are blowing and going. They are banging, and Jason wants to make sure they take the new queens. So one way to do that is put them into a position where without doing it, they're screwed, like they have to. There's tons of basically sugar honey because it's sugar water honey that I've you know fed them sugar, and they've made honey out of it. Uh, in, in, in the hives as well. So what we'll do is we're going to split the two not into four, but the two into six, requeen all six of them. And that's going to knock them down to a point where they're going to have to take that new queen. And then within six weeks, I'm going to be back to my nice, you know, Italian blonde genetics, uh, with my nice calm bees that Jason breeds. Uh, and the downside. The, the upside is I get to go to six boxes. I'm going to put in a top bar hive. I might even do a top bar hive and a wari top bar hive. Not sure yet. Um, but I'm going to six hives. It's going to be a lot more bees, a lot more honey yield, 
a lot more like I really want to be. We're changing the stand configuration to make it basically no way that fire ants can be a problem anymore. All that's good. We're moving the bees. Some of you are going to be like two, two miles or, or two feet. How are we going to do that? Jason's going to take my two hives to his house for like a week and a half, two weeks, and we'll get the whole system set up for the new bees and then bring them back and split them into that. We'll break up, give each, everybody some brood, give everybody some honey, give everybody some pollen, uh, and, and it'll be off to the races and good to go. So that's kind of what we have there. But I just want to kind of point out for you beekeepers that this is a thing that you need to have a plan for. This happens. This happens more often uh, than I think a lot of people realize. You get these great, calm bees, and when that queen flies to, to, to requeen the hive, if you're not you know manually requeening them and, and crushing cells, you don't know who she's going to breed with and what that's going to do to your genetics. Now, in a normal situation, so some people say, well, since you're going to go a whole season now without honey, you know, is that what always happens? And no, I mean, what you can do is you just find the queen and you squish her. And you keep an eye on your hives and you squish any queen cells and you requeen them. And in general, sooner or later, they have to take a queen from you. But it can get expensive if, you know, they kill the first one and keep trying to requeen themselves and whatever. And the reason they do that is they don't want your new queen's genetics. They know it's not their genetics. And they want to maintain what they have. So it, it can be difficult. So this is a, another compelling reason to even if you're the kind of do-it-yourself type and you, you want to go it alone, if you're doing bees, get a mentor. Get a mentor so when stuff like this happens and you're not sure what to do, they can advise you what to do. Um, I'm kind of a, a, a bee super novice, even though I've had bees now for a couple seasons, uh, where if I got into that hive the way Jason did and those bees were on me like that, Frankly, that hive would still be open. I, I I would have just walked away. I mean, I think he got stung five or six times. He was wearing like he usually goes out like in a half suit or whatever. Like so, he got stung enough. He's like, screw this. He goes back to his truck, full suits up, goes back out there, deals with, goes through both of them fully. Um, it would have never happened for me the way that they were being. And uh, again, uh, this is another compelling reason to have a bee mentor for all you new beaks out there. Let's get to some actual feedback. This isn't actually an email. For shows like this, generally, what you want to do, you send me an email and put uh, TSPC in the subject line and then put, like, article for Jack, comment for Jack, something like that after it. That'll make sure that I find it. This is actually from a comment on the blog, and it's a follow-up from a show I did about businesses that you can start uh, with a small budget. And one of the businesses that I talked about starting with a small budget was just basically power washing like driveways and sidewalks and stuff like that. And that also allows you to power wash things like decks and fences. So then you could add to that power washing and restaining or power washing and staining decks and fences. And this is, a, I mean, if you look in any suburb, this is a, a common need. There's so, if you're in any kind of large scale city, town, et cetera, with, you know, millions of people that just by cold calling with this, you could build a pretty good business off of it. Uh, and, This individual, MJ, not the Bee Whisperer MJ, just a different person that calls himself MJ on the blog, says, as an add-on to the idea of power washing driveways and decks, we have a guy who shows up to my work and offers $5 car washes right in our parking lot. He has a gas-powered pressure washer and some water drums on the back of the truck. Shows up a couple times a, a week when it's warm out. Takes him a few minutes per vehicle. The guy always has a smile on his face. Our owner now has hired him to do the entire company fleet, the exterior of our entire building, and some odd jobs at his house. So that's like a guy that just says, you know, I'm going to go out and see what I can do with this piece of equipment. And because he got creative about it, it led to other opportunities. And that's a big thing that I want to talk to you guys about real quick with just business in general. 
the, the way we approach business needs to be very much like the way Russian athletes ap approached things like the Olympics. When I used to work with Valerie Asinov, um, what he told me, and this again, this is a guy that was part of the Olympic Judo squad for Russia, actually USSR back in those times, um, was that their athletes were not actually trained to win, and that's why they won so much. And my response to that was, okay, that doesn't make sense. Please explain it to me. And he said what they were actually trained to do was survive. And this it was inclusive of not just combat arts like judo, right? So in judo, obviously, like to survive to the next round or to survive the current attack by your opponent. But if it was a sprinter, survive the next heat. That's like your goal. Just survive. Just survive. And no matter what sport it was, this was the philosophy that they taught their athletes to survive. Because if you survive long enough... Eventually, you see an opportunity, a weakness in your opponent, and that point you capitalize on that opportunity and you find a way to win. I, I don't know how true that works out in certain sports because in the end, when you're like running the hundred meter dash or whatever, some people are just faster than other people, and you know, there's an end to to all philosophies that gets to a point where natural talent is going to take over. But in business, I couldn't actually think of a more eloquent way to explain how to become successful in business. Because as a business, you, you don't need to survive by beating your competition or even win by beating your competition. You survive and win by building your business to a point where it becomes self-sustaining and regenerative and continues to grow at a pace that allows you to keep up with the growth, do a good job for your customers and provide you all the needs that you have for your life. And in most niches, the, the size of even what you would consider a small niche is measured in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, you don't need to beat everybody to be successful. You don't even really need to beat anybody to be successful. If you grow enough of your own market segment, you actually are in better condition because instead of competing for a market share, you actually control a piece of a market share that is really not reached by the rest of your, your competitors, if you want to look at them as competitors. So I really think it's important for you guys that want to build businesses to start thinking about how do I get to next week? How do I get to next month? How do I make some money? How do I, how do I keep this business running? And, and, and not like some kind of like survival hang-on mode, like where it's just desperate hanging on by your fingernails and you're actually going deeper and deeper into debt and into a hole in the ground, but actually truly surviving, truly still being standing in the next round and actually being a little bit better than you were at the beginning of that round, actually coming a little bit ahead each time. If you do that, then opportunities will show up. If you're hungry and you're out trying to make it work instead of sitting back waiting for opportunities, so you're going out trying to create opportunities, those opportunities will trigger other opportunities. And when those opportunities show up, if you're in the right frame of mind, you recognize them. So this guy that you know kind of started going out cleaning cars and then picked up all this extra business from one, might I add, one commercial account, one. How many places are there that he could do this? Approached the guy that runs the place. Hey, I do mobile car washing. Would it be okay if I offered your employees car washes for five bucks in the parking lot? Right. <laughs> How many places could he do that? How many places would it lead to other opportunities? What other types of opportunities might it lead to? Who knows? 
but you're creating the trigger that causes one opportunity to cascade and create others. It's kind of a, a, a business-level trophic cascade. So that, that's something to really think about, you guys that are small entrepreneurs trying to grow a business. This next one I thought about not covering today because the last thing I need while I'm in recovery is uh, blowing my blood pressure up. So I, I'm not going to do a jack snap out on this one, I promise. But this was sent to me by so many people, I feel the need to go ahead and cover it right away because it's pointing out a problem in law enforcement, yet another problem in law enforcement. And those of you in law enforcement, um, if you ever do... If you ever do what you're about to hear or attempt to do what you hear was attempted to be done, I want you to know something about yourself. You are a vile piece of shit. You should turn in your badge and your gun, and you should go find something more indicative of your talents, like, oh, I don't know, cleaning raw sewage out of the bottom of sewage tanks or something, because that's where you belong. You are a vile scumbag piece of shit, badge or no badge, if you ever take the action that this officer attempted to take, Because you were told to do so. Because it was your orders. If you will follow orders like this, you are not competent to wear a uniform and have a badge. I'll say that at the beginning, because it'll let me read it with a little bit more calmness and a little less peaking of my blood pressure. Last week, a West Virginia woman who stood between her dog and a state trooper intent on killing him was acquitted of obstructing an officer by a jury in Wood County. It took the jurors half an hour to acquit 23-year-old Tiffany Hupp after they watched the video of the incident that Hupp's husband, Ryan, shot with his cell phone. Trooper Seth Cook came up to the Hupp's house on May 9, 2015 in response to a dispute between a neighbor and Ryan's stepfather. There, Cook encountered Buddy, a Labrador Husky mix who was chained outside the house. The dog, whom Hupp described as a big baby, ran toward Cook barking and Hook Cook backed up. Even though the dog had reached the end of his chain and Cook was not in any danger, he drew his pistol. I immediately thought, I don't want him to get shot. Hupp, who was in the yard with her three-year-old son, told the Charleston Gazette Mail. The video shows her stepping in front of Cook, at which point he grabs her, throws her to the ground like the piece of garbage that he is, picks her up, leans her up against his cruiser, and handcuffed her. Okay, I'm going to pause there for a second. This maggot scumbag cop clearly knew the dog wasn't a threat or he wouldn't have had time to turn his back on the dog and arrest this woman like the maggot piece of cesspool crap that he is. But this is about to get worse. You're about to see how sick this system's become. Quote, The officer alleged in the complaint that she raised her arm, and quote, Hupp's lawyer, David Shiles, told the Gazette Mail, quote, but we did a stop frame of the video for the jury, and it showed that she was stationary, her arms at her side. All she said was, don't do that, and Cook grabbed her by the bicep, spun her around, and she ends up falling down, end quote. So the officer is an effing liar, in addition to being a scumbag. Now, he did tell the truth eventually about at least one part of this that makes it even worse. After he heard about the case, Shiles contacted Hub and offered to represent her for free. Quote, I thought it was outrageous. This girl is being charged for standing in her own yard and saying nothing but don't shoot my dog, end quote, he said. According to photography, is not a crime. Cook, quote, testified that he was not afraid of the dog. Okay, this is scumbag Seth Cook. You scumbag maggot. You need to quit your job. You scumbag. You are not qualified to be a state trooper. You are a scumbag. Please, somebody that knows this maggot, get this to him so he can hear what a vile piece of crap Jack Spierko thinks he is. You are a scumbag, sir. You do not belong wearing the badge or the uniform, because this is why, right here. Cook, scumbag, testified that he was not afraid of the dog. 
but was following training that required him to kill all dogs that approach him, even if it was chained or wagging its tail as Buddy was doing in this case, end quote. Hub told PINAC that her case hinged on her husband's video, which they did not have for weeks after the incident because maggot scumbag cook, I added the maggot scumbag in case you can't tell, confiscated the phone, which he was unable to access because it was protected by a password. Without the video, it's just my word against state true, a state trooper, she said. Nobody's going to believe my word over law enforcement. So the maggot scumbag liar took the phone, lied about what happened, was unable to access the phone and delete the evidence. You still think Apple should make a backdoor, folks? Do you, huh? Do you? Do you? Do you really? Now, I might also add, That this officer had no right to confiscate this phone, in my opinion. Maybe by the letter of the law he did. I don't know, because the individual that took the video was not part of the case. He did not interfere with the officer. He was standing at a distance and recorded the video. So, I guess the officer's saying, well, this is evidence of the case. But we know that, right, Seth? We know that's not what you were doing. You were trying to cover your ass now, weren't you? You're going to be trying, well, I pulled the video up and I somehow accidentally deleted it. And it's not there, but it's my word against hers now, weren't you? Weren't you? But I'll tell you the real problem here. The real problem with scumbag, psychopath, maggot police officers that are oath-breaking pieces of crap. Here is right here. You know how sometimes you get guy, you guys get upset in law enforcement when people compare you to Nazis and say, "But I, I was only following orders." That's exactly what this is. Screw common sense. Screw using your brain. Screw being a decent human being. My orders are: if I see a dog and it's in my way, to kill it. Now, this is a response to two neighbors complaining about each other, right? This isn't a drug case or something like that. Okay. West Virginia, you guys got some work to do. And I'm sure many other states have work to do, too. This can't be policy. This can't be policy. And you guys need to ride out of town on a rail anybody that endorses this type of policy. You, if you live in West Virginia, you need to make phone calls today to your local police department and your local branch of the state troopers and saying, is this your policy? If so, please explain yourself. By the way, which elected officials oversee your budget? Because I'm going to be talking to them. I'm going to be talking to them. This can't be policy in West Virginia. This shouldn't be policy in Texas. It probably is on some level. But you cops, if you do this and you say, but that's what my orders are, you are a Nazi. You're just killing dogs instead of uh, uh, pe people. That's the difference. You're saying, screw being a decent human being. Screw following my conscience. I'm going to murder a kid's dog. A kid's dog in front of them. And when a lady steps between me and says, hey, don't shoot him, then I'm going to be a lying, oath-breaking piece of shit and say, she raised her hands. You can watch the video. He wasn't confused. He did not understand what happened. He didn't misremember. He's a liar. So this is what I think. Trooper Seth Cook, if the prosecutor in your community that prosecuted this woman on your behalf is worth a, 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 an ounce, an ounce of goodness... He will turn around, feel embarrassed by what you did, and prosecute you, sir, for perjury. Because you lied, and you knew that you lied. It's There's no way around it. You lied. You lied under oath. You lied under a badge. You're scum. You're scum. And I, I get like this once in a while, and I really ride this a little harder than I should, but it's because I know i got lots of police officers that listen to me. 
you guys, you want to be respected? You, you want people to look at police officers the way they did 30 years ago? Clean your shit up. If you know a guy like this, take him to the woodshed. Pull him aside. Say, we don't do things that way. But they said, I don't care what they said. You see something like this happen? There's another cop here. And what's he do? He helps her, he helps his buddy arrest this woman. And you know the only reason they didn't just go ahead and shoot the dog anyway? Because they knew it was on video and they knew it was probably going to be a problem. This guy was going to shoot this dog. And you know what? This maggot cop, go watch this video and check the draw out. Does this guy draw the gun like a trained police officer and go into a front-ready position with the weapon? No. He draws the gun sidearms like a freaking gangster thug. I'm going to let it go for now. But if you hadn't heard about this story yet, please go watch this video. Please go take a look at this article for yourself. And please, any police officer that you know, you send them this. And you tell them. You tell them if you believe it personally, that if they would act this way, you don't think they should be a police officer anymore. Are we, I mean, are we going to fix this problem, or are we not going to fix this problem? I believe all the hype, right, all the hype of, 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 of every time anybody gets shot by a cop that turns out to be black, it was wrong, is to make sure we don't have this conversation, right? The, the Black Lives Matter, we can't have this conversation. I want to have this conversation. I want to have this conversation from both ends on a reasonable level. I want cops to admit you have scumbags. Any cop that tells me it's a few bad apples, I have no respect for you. You're a lying piece of shit. You are. It's not a few bad apples. It's not a few bad... Do you know how, how insulting that is to the intelligence of the average American that now sees what happens on a daily basis? Now, you want to tell me it's maybe 10% of your officers that behave this way. I'll entertain that. Well, then, that's a shitload of people with authority, a badge, a taser, a gun, a rifle, and a whole bunch of other guys that when they show up will just back them until they figure out what's going on later. The authority of the state, okay? That's a problem. When you're willing to admit it's a problem, when all of you are willing to stand the F up and speak up, then we can have a conversation about renewing trust between law enforcement and society. And I'm going to tell you why you better do it. This problem will not get better until you men that wear the badge, stand up, speak up, and show up on the side of right and the constitutions that you swore an oath to, de to defend. It will get worse and worse and worse, and people will trust you less and less and less, and they will help you less and less and less, and they will back you less and less and less. And don't forget this, cops. Don't forget anybody in law enforcement. Don't forget this. You need us. You need us. We are the people that pay your bills, and we are the people that help you find those you're looking for. And there are many of us now that feel like this. F that, I ain't talking to you. I can't trust you. And every day I see another reason not to trust you. But I would like to ask you some lawyer. But I would like to, lawyer. But I would, attorney. But you look attorney. You see? Now, I didn't used to be that way. I don't want to be that way. If you're actually trying to catch a scumbag that did something scummy that needs to be caught, I want to help you. But you've shown me I can't. I can't trust you. I can't speak to you without counsel. And I have friends that are cops. And I tell them the same thing. And you know what most of them admit in the end? You're right. I wouldn't talk to me without counsel either in an investigation. You've done this to yourselves. And this is a perfect example, but I was only following the orders. You don't want to be compared to Nazis? Don't act like one. 
Now that I pissed off the cops, let's go to something totally different and get my blood pressure back down. Said I wasn't going to get it up, but how do you, if you were a feeling, thinking, compassionate human being that values people, that values life, that actually wants society to be a better place, that actually wants to have respect for law enforcement, and you see this and your blood pressure doesn't get up, something's wrong with you. Give yourself a kick or two. Check your heart. Check your pulse. Something's wrong. See your doctor. As we move on, let me point out the one upside in this this whole thing. Uh, the, the, the verdict of not guilty is technically jury nullification. Because whether the lady put her arms up or not is really irrelevant to whether or not she interfered with an officer in the completion of his duties. The officer, according to his testimony, and no one from the state of West Virginia has bothered to say it's not true, so I'm assuming that it is, has stated that it was his duty to shoot that dog. She therefore interfered with an officer in the commission of his duties by putting her body between the officer and the dog. As a uh, prosecutor, you would attempt to make that case. And you'd probably convinced every single member of that jury that that did occur. And the jury said, yeah, that's nice. We don't care. Not guilty. That's jury nullification, folks. And, and that's another way to deal with this. It really is. There's another way to deal with this is to begin to use the jury box. Because it's a hell of a lot better than the ballot box at rectifying wrongs in this country. We, we need to inform every citizen in this country of what their rights are as a juror. On that note, I want to talk about the boxes and uh, uh, some some things that I say and a, compl a complaint, I guess you'd call it, that I hear from time to time. I'm going to read the email first, though, that made me think of this. It comes from Zane. And Zane says, you have a phrase you say of late, something on the order of, the ballot box is a fool's errand and the rifle is a death sentence. This phrase has caused me to decide to re-up my MSB. I'm a member who got dropped out on the recent problems of PayPal. Well, Gabe Suez, whoever that is, Sharares or whatever, is bragging about the people he has killed, and members of the TSP forum are calling you a bush hippie. I'm calling you a voice of reason. I'm 68, a retired law enforcement officer, after 31 years plus, two years of Army. Thank you for having your head on straight, Zane. Well, thank you, Zane. But that does make me think of, I hear this lately, like, Jack, you've changed so much. I hear people, I'm not going to be involved with you anymore because you've become an anarchist and you've changed the, your, you know, who you are and what you're really all about. And I want to assert the core of my message has not changed at all. And I want to use this quote to prove it. What Zane said I've said lately is the ballot box is a fool's errand and the rifle is a death sentence. For those that say survival podcast that episode 1740 has changed, and that's a recent thing, or things like that are recent things. Did you know the first episode I ever said that? I was still driving a car when I was doing the podcast. It was set off the cuff because it was something genuine and that I really believed. And it absolutely is the case. I believe that it's the case. I believe that you're going to not change anything in the current elections by voting. And I believe that if you think you're going to change things by picking up a gun and, you know, asserting that you're going to have an armed revolution in this country, you're, you're, you're sending yourself to death. I'm not even saying that's the way things should be. I'm saying that's the way things are. But when, oh when, dear friends, did Jack Spirico say for the first time that the only way to rebel in this, that the way to rebel in this country isn't with the ballot box and it isn't with a rifle. The ballot box is a fool's errand and the rifle is a death sentence. That would have been episode 130. Seven. 137. Uh, just for shits and grins, let me go look that up and see what the date was. 
The show was called Individual Secession from the Systems. The date was February 6, 2009. The reason I didn't know that exact date is I actually found it by running a search for that quote and found it in the Survival Podcast Forum, where apparently some of my own members now call me a bush hippie because I believe in not killing people who haven't done anything to aggress upon me. If that's the definition of bush hippie, you can call me a bush hippie all you want. But if you think the core message of Survival Podcast has changed very much, then I invite you to go back and start with episode one and one and listen to the first 200 episodes again. Perhaps it's not me that's changed, but perhaps it's you. Perhaps some of you have been caught up in this whole belief that Superman is coming to save us in the form of a Sanders or a Trump. I don't know. But I do know my belief has always been, and I've always taught from day one, that you are your own answer that what you do matters, and there is no salvation in the systems. In fact, our very goal is to develop independence from these systems of support in case they fail, and in many instances because they're quite detrimental to who we are and what we're all about. It, it amazes me that people equate being anti-war with being a bush hippie. Let me give you a little quote here from somebody who was quite anti-war, someone that might surprise you how anti-war they were. I'll read the quote first, and then I'll tell you who it was. The quote is, I hate war. It's only a soldier who has lived it can. Only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, its stupidity. Was that some big traitor like John Kerry when he came back from Vietnam? No, folks. That was the commander of the, the Allied Forces, Dwight David Eisenhower, probably one of the greatest men that's ever served this nation as president, someone that actually believed in what he was doing, even when he made mistakes. I believe that Eisenhower was an honest man. Eisenhower was honest enough that in his farewell address, he warned us about the military-industrial complex. But Eisenhower was the man who made men believe that they could survive D-Day and that their sacrifice would be worthy even if they did not. Eisenhower was a hell of a general, but he was pretty anti-war if you look back at the totality of what he had to say. He believed that war was to be fought as a last resort, not a first response. So if you want to hang me up as being a bush hippie because I'm against war when unnecessary, put me right up next to Dwight David Eisenhower. And if you think the show's changed, again, I just invite you to go back and listen to the original episodes and... Tell me exactly what you think has changed, other than I've gone from libertarian to anarchist. But the overriding beliefs there aren't even that much different from the same forum thread. Even before I myself was an anarchist, our government is a direct reflection of the people of this country. Take a walk through any major city. Talk to people in the middle of that city. You'll find there isn't much disagreement with our government as we've been led to believe. We've got to create disagreement by creating independence. That was from episode 334. I've been on the same page, guys, since the very beginning. The answer is not in the system. It's in us being willing to separate ourselves from that system, stand apart from it, and show people there is an alternative. There's an alternative to bombing housing that has children in it. There is an alternative to that. There really is. I know there's horrible things going on in other parts of the world, but isn't it interesting how we seem to care about some horrible things going on in some parts of the world and turn our backs on many other horrible things going on in other parts of the world? Maybe if we saw to fixing our own shit first, we could be the example that could actually lead the world instead of the ruler that attempts to tell the world how to live. If you think that's different, 
all I have to say is for 1,700 plus episodes, you, you haven't really been paying attention. This is an interesting question. This is from Justin. Justin says, is there any benefit to the liberty movement of the shaking out of the neocons from the establishment political parties? Right now, the neocons are threatening to leave the Republican Party if Trump is the nominee. This is obvious. If you are a neocon and you think that Hillary will be the Democrat nominee, but Sanders is gaining on her too. I'm not by any stretch endorsing either one of these candidates, but let's say Trump v. Sanders in November. Where do the neocons go? They've become too used to being in power to just pack up and go home. So they make a third party and shake all the voters out in sheep's clothing of both parties? Or does a libertarian candidate and Ron Paul, amongst others, make a case for many of those jumping ship to explore the cause of liberty? Love the show, Justin. I think there's always an opportunity to utilize the ass clown circus to promote the cause of liberty. To say, look at what your, your options supposedly are. Like this, this is the best we can do. We, the best we can do is, is in the Republican Party apparently right now is either Donald Trump is an anti-establishment candidate when Trump is the establishment. He's the embodiment of the establishment. And the man is no conservative Republican. I'm not saying I'm a conservative Republican. Uh, I have my own beliefs. They're very anarcho-libertarian. Okay, But I, I know what you claim to believe if you're a, a conservative Republican. And the words coming out of somebody's mouth have less to do with what they really believe than the words that came out of their mouth over uh, periods of times in history and the actions they've actually taken. Trump now sounds very pro-Second Amendment, but the man has been for assault weapons bans and other things like that. Uh, you could go down the list. So Trump's not even the conservative Republican that people are making him out to be. But what they're saying is we don't really care. At least he's different. Okay, I'm sure Hitler was different than the people that you know that put him in power had before he got there too. I'm not saying Trump's Hitler. I'm just saying like different doesn't mean good. Ted Cruz is a man who has called the CFR a, a den of vipers and bashed uh, Goldman Sachs. Turns out his wife was a member of the CFR and is currently a VP of uh, Goldman Sachs in Houston. Yeah. You just can't even make this stuff up. By the way, the guy was nothing in politics until such time as he married this woman who was a Bush staffer. Yeah, and he's the anti-establishment inside the party guy. You, you turn over to Hillary Clinton and you got a woman who should be in prison right now. No matter what your politics are, if you did what Hillary Clinton did in any, any capacity of being a government employee, whether it was Secretary of State or a lowly peon at the bottom, you'd be in federal prison. The only reason she's not in federal prison is because she's politically connected at, at the highest levels possible. She should be in prison right now. Bernie Sanders is a loser. I don't care if you like Bernie's message. Bernie's a loser. The man never held a real job in his life. He's accomplished almost the square root of F all in politics over all these years. Before he was a politician, he was a welfare recipient. The, and the, these four are the best we can do in America? Regardless of what the neocons do in response to this, I, I, I'd say... Could you make a better case for other options? Could you make a better case for liberty than the fact that we're once again being presented with people that are going to leave everybody who participates in this shenanigan of voting, this illusion of voting, with choosing the lesser of two evils? I, I'd really like to believe in one of these people. I would. I'd also like to believe that Santa Claus will bring me presents on December 25th this year. But sometimes you grow up and you take a look at history and say, that was mom and dad, and no, these people never do. I mean, that's where we're at in all of this. Now, what do I think, let's say Trump wins the nomination, and, and you know, there's no broker convention, whatever, like it's just so overwhelming he wins the nomination. 
And let's say it's, I don't care if it's Hillary or Bernie on the other side. The neocons still have a problem, the neoconservatives. Now, to understand this in totality, though, you have to understand that the, the people that run the Democrat Party and the people that run the Republican Party, you would call them neocons and neolibs, I guess, if you wanted. But the reality is they're all neo-fascists. Right? They're modern fascists. Modern fascism is an economic system of control. And classic fascism, hold your, I know sometimes you get all upset with me when I say things, that's Hitler. It's not Hitler. Hitler was a fascist. There's been lots of fascists in history and in present, okay? Fascism, the classic definition of fascism, is an economic system of control where the government and private industry work together and utilize the divisions between the classes acting as a moderator to further the agenda of both the industry and the state. Okay, In classic fascism, the way it worked is the government controlled the market and handed the contracts and the money, etc., to the corporations. That's classical fascism. So you can have as much free market you want as long as we're the ones that decide who the free market is and the, the government's passing the money on to the corporations. Neo-fascism, modern fascism, has just been flipped around where the corporations buy the politicians and therefore one hand is flipped to the other. So the corporatocracy is actually in control. And both the mainstream Democrats, and again, forget the people that vote, okay? You guys are pawns on the chessboard. You're not a valid piece as far as they're concerned. I'm sorry, you will all be sacrificed whenever necessary, okay? You're not even like a rook or a knight. The, 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 the kings and queens in this system are in collusion with each other, even though they pretend to be on different sides. They're no more opposed to each other than Macho Man Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan from 1985. Okay? They're not. And they both have this common ideology of neo-fascism. But they do have this kind of mafia-centered, it's my block, it's your block type thing going on. So what do the neocons do if Trump's the nominee? Well, what they probably do is just step back and let it happen. And just wait for the disaster. And come back and say, see, we told you. We need a real a real candidate next time. We can't have this. Uh, you see severe challenges to his presidency uh, if, if he does get elected for not just re-election, but the nomination itself. You, you know, hammering him on everything he's done wrong, which I'm sure there'll be plenty. Um But the neocons are not the people that really decide elections. They're the ones that control the party. So they, they really don't have any say over who shows up and who doesn't. But what they can do is sabotage. They could do a third-party run. I don't see it, though. I, I really don't see it. What's more likely is if Trump loses the nomination, which is a very real way that could happen still. Depends on how stubborn Marco Rubio is. But if that happens, um, then there's a good chance he runs as a third party. And then that hands the election to whoever the Democrat is. How closely will I follow all this? Not very. This is what scares me. Very, very long time ago, before Barack Obama was elected, I said Obama will be elected in the coming election. I got a lot of hate mail because that was like, you're endorsing Obama. I'm not, I'm not. I'm picking a winner. I'm not telling you who I want to be president, right? See, it hasn't changed that much. And uh, the other thing I said was, he'll win re-election. 
He will win re Before he got elected, I said he would re win the re-election. And I said that there would be this big false recovery and the economy would seem to be on its feet, but yet there would be a lot of incompetence and the, the nation would be so tired and so worn out and so exasperated that they would flip to a Republican after the Obama's eight years. And that when they did, that we would pick a very unlikely strongman candidate. And that strongman candidate would be able to get things done as a Republican and get elected as a Republican and do things that no one would ever think a Republican would do or be permitted to do. or And that not only would he do them, that people would follow him with complete irrationality. That they would just like, they would back it. They, that we'd have a new Republican who would bring us real, a true government takeover of health care. And people would accept it because it's too expensive, I can't afford it. Sounds a lot like Trump. It sounds a lot like Trump. Now, how does Trump lose the nomination? Marco Rubio backs out, throws his full weight behind Ted Cruz. And um, what's his name, the, the other guy? See how, see how little I pay attention to this? What's his name from Ohio? Kasich, right? Kasich is as small a player as he is. He backs out. He throws his, his full weight behind Cruz. If that happens, right now, if you took all of uh, Rubio's uh, delegates and Kasich's delegates and gave them to Cruz, Cruz would actually be ahead of Trump in the delegate count by a significant margin. So I would actually say this. I think there's a possibility the GOP wants this guy president. This is all a facade. There's going to be this big coming together at the end. It wasn't anybody's ideal, but now we have to stop. And then think about it. Think about it as a Republican marketing piece. We have to stop Hillary Clinton. We have to stop Bernie Sanders. Is one or the other even a better play? And I think the answer is you couldn't have a better play either way. You have this criminal, former Secretary of State, with baggage a mile long, who's not a very likable person, who's totally not trustworthy to come up against, or a guy that says flat out, I'm a socialist, and has this entire lift that he's gotten so far coming from people that don't pay taxes. There's almost no one that pays taxes at any significant level that thinks that Sanders is a good idea for president. The guy's an avowed socialist. And he doesn't pair well against Trump. He doesn't. Clinton will not pair well against Trump. I'm the guy that said so often, I can't see Donald Trump as president. That when people actually are making a decision instead of taking a guess, the guy goes down in flames. So far I've been proven wrong. And what scares the shit out of me, folks, is God, the guy looks like the man I predicted 16 years ago. Almost to the T. Because what I said was it would be irrational. It would be a guy that you would never think would get elected. By the way, do you know the Simpsons? Predicted this? Yes, the cartoon. There's an episode. I don't remember one, but it's one of you nerd guys out there. It's nerdier than me, even. We'll remember this and find it in a clip, I'm sure, and post the link to it. There was an episode of The Simpsons where it was like a time travel episode, like a look into the future, and Lisa says to Bart, or something to that effect, well, President Trump said, or President Trump is doing. Yeah, President Trump was predicted by The Simpsons. Man, the Simpsons seem to have predicted a lot of stupidity in this country. So, you know, I think the the guy that created Idiocracy, the movie, has come out and, and basically said, you know, there's been a meme, a joke a long time that it wasn't supposed to be a documentary. And he's basically said, yeah, that's, you know, he meant it as a joke. And now it really is a documentary. And it saddens even him.
Before we go on and cover one more thing today, um, I'd like to throw out a little interesting thought, a little interesting question. I'd love to hear from you guys your thoughts. And again, you don't have to be a believer in the Ask Clown Circus to play this little game. We can make predictions about elections without really being worried about what happens. Um, and don't take that to mean I'm not worried about what happens to my country, but I, I'm worried about ha what happens to my country under any of these people. But let's assume Trump wins the nomination. Let's assume that. Let's assume by the convention it's a done deal. There's no fighting at the convention. It's, it's been accepted. It sucks, but it's going to be. And let's say at the convention we're having Trump stand up with a running mate. A running mate. Who's his running mate? Who do you think Donald Trump chooses as a running mate? If you looked at the actual candidates that he stood up against, the most obvious one would be pretty difficult now because he's called the guy a liar so many times. But it would be Ted Cruz. If Donald Trump were to say, I'm choosing Ted Cruz as my running mate, it would show uh, choosing a person with political experience. It would show choosing someone who's very much, at least on paper, a constitutionalist. And it would also still be choosing the guy that's been outside the fold, so to speak. It would be very powerful, but how do you reconcile the differences? And all I'll say is look back at Reagan and Bush, the, the old man Bush, right? Um, those guys, not quite the same way, but had almost like this vehement hatred of each other in debates coming up to uh, the nomination. And yet it made political sense, and, and, and Reagan was very much a, a political pragmatist. You know, the vice president really doesn't do much, but he does help me win or lose an election. So, you know, that's one person it could be. But if you were to say, let's say Trump wants to stay outside, another outsider, do you think he's dumb enough to pick Sarah Palin? I don't. I think that would, I know she endorsed him at all, but I think that would be like an also ran loser type thing. And she's gotten more ridiculous with the way she sounds since the first election by a long shot. And I don't think Sarah Palin really wants to be vice president. I think she wants to sell books and run around and, and yap her yap hole. So that, that does, and then she's not really a non-politician. Who might Trump choose as a running mate? He's actually apparently said he would consider John Kasich. And that would be another kind of smart play because you've got a guy that actually is in the eyes of the establishment, competent in government. Uh, he's a guy that you might want uh, around in the future to, to take an opportunity at pulling power back to the neocons, right? Um, he He's kind of likable in a lot of ways. He's really a neocon. He's like so much like this the, this Republicrat type thing, right? Um, he might help carry uh, a state like Ohio and maybe even Pennsylvania and New York State. So he might help Trump to actually win. The whole thing could just be a setup. Trump might not even be hated by the GOP. That might be their very way of getting him into a position to get him elected. This may all be collusion. Who knows? This is a guy that's buddies with the Bushes and buddies with the Clintons, and somehow, even as a reality TV star and, and nut job, he's leading the GOP toward nomination. A guy that could be knocked off by the numbers tomorrow if Marco Rubio stepped out of the way. And Rubio's a party wag. He really is. And he knows he's not going to win at this point. The only thing he's doing by staying in is entrenching the opportunity for Trump. The whole thing could be a scam. And once again, the American people, it's victims. It's interesting to watch the ass clown circus when it becomes something that's over there and not something you're attached to. Um, we'll see. The last person could be someone that tried and then failed. 
so that they were out of all this stuff, but yet had some kind of populist appeal. Scott Walker, Rick Perry. Those are two other people that no one's even talking about. And if you look at a lot of the past uh, VP uh, selections, they've ended up on both sides being people like that weren't really on the short list in the beginning. So I would say that those are actually your two more likely names to pop up. I really believe Trump has an affection for Scott Walker, an affinity for Scott Walker. I don't know why, but I just, I know why I feel that way, but I don't know why he would. But I saw during the early debates when Walker was talking, Trump didn't have this you suck look on his face like he did, this contempt look on his face like he did for everybody else. And Rick Perry has, from a marketing standpoint, now I hate the guy, don't get this wrong, but Rick Perry has some very key marketing points to be used and a populist message like is going to be used for mainstream Republican voters to try to win this election. Anyway, one more. Nice, lighthearted, simple one, too. This is from Ara. Ara says, to keep gold and silver coins, would credit unions or banks be better in the form of getting a safe deposit box? So would either one of them be considered a safer place to put your gold and silver in excess that you don't want to keep in your home? The honest answer there is, for all intents and purposes, it would be the same. Let me start out with this. If we take out the United States government attempting to freeze or seize your assets, that safe deposit boxes are one of the safest places for anything of value you want to store off-site uh, at a third-party location. Oh, they're incredibly safe. They're incredibly secured. Generally, a locked box behind a locked vault. And there's so many safe deposit boxes in one of those vaults that anybody that actually breached a vault at a bank doesn't have time to even try to jack around with opening safe deposit boxes and getting into bank vaults nowhere near as uh, common as the TV would lead you to believe with making made-for-TV movies and things like that. Uh, generally, banks are robbed. It's the, the drawers that are robbed by an active bank robbery at a certain you know, timed, uh, basically, uh, armed invasion of the bank. It's not usually some guy at night that sneaks into the vault and makes off with a sack of money with a dollar sign on it, right? So in general, you're talking about a very secure environment, period. If, if you had a, a, a can of, of, of silver coins, a coffee can with a lid on it, sitting on the floor in a bank vault, and everybody was ordered to leave that can alone, I wouldn't advise it, but it, it's more likely than not, if you came back 10 years later, that can would be sitting there with dust on it, and it would be safe. Okay, So now you add to that a safe deposit box, I think they're both highly secure. So then we have to turn our, our eye toward Ira Ramon Sancia, the IRS, right, the federal government, uh, and, and any other uh, lettered agency that might seek to uh, look at you with suspicion and, and get a hold of your assets, okay? Under the Patriot Act, this is one of those things that slip by most people. Under the Patriot Act, a lot of things happened that had nothing to do with what we were told it was for. And one was the redefinement, the redefinition of what a financial relationship was. Prior to the Patriot Act, a bank account, a certificate of deposit, savings, checking, uh, an IRA through your bank, etc., uh, were considered a, a, a financial relationship with a, a, a bank. And they were treated as, as such by the government and law enforcement. So uh, it, it would be relatively easy if you were under suspicion to take a look at what you had or to seize your assets, even if they didn't have a formal charge. Like, we think something's up, so we're going to seize this until we figure it out. And that could be just long enough to starve you out, right? 
But a safe deposit box was not. A safe deposit box was just simply seen as private storage. In order to gain access to a safe deposit box prior to the Patriot Act, one had to produce a search warrant that would be on equal footing with what would be required to, per se, come into your home and, you know, uh, look in your desk drawer or examine the files on your computer or something like that. But by redefining safe deposit boxes as financial relationships with financial institutions, they've both become subject to that. So that if you were in a situation where the government came looking at you and wanted to hold all your assets, they would then have the ability to basically seize the, occupa- uh, the contents of your safe deposit box. So unless you're worried about that from a security standpoint, then choosing between the two is irrelevant. And even if you are, choosing between the two is irrelevant because it's not like your checking account, savings account, whatever your credit union is under some special umbrella protecting it from the federal government. Credit unions are run for the purpose of serving the members of the credit union and generally offer better terms and some other better. And there's lots of reasons to do business with a credit union over a bank, but security generally isn't one of them. Uh, if you have a bank failure in America today, the way that the credit unions work, there's not much likely of a case that they're going to not have failures as well. So if that's your concern, if you want to have wealth stored that is more difficult, I'm not going to say impossible because nothing's impossible, but more difficult for the government to seize or get their hands on. If you want kind of a, a, a get-out-of-dodge fund, well, what do you do? Well, probably the best thing is a floor safe in your home. Because while all this is going on, generally when, when assets are seized, it's because we don't have the ability to just bring charges against somebody right now. And we're trying to, to smoke them out, so to speak. So they don't generally also serve a search warrant, come in your home and do that. Now, if those thing, two things are happening simultaneously, you've got a problem anyway because you're probably going to jail. right? You're going to be trying to post bond or what have you. Um, assuming they're not, then you have time to react and, and take that wealth and go do something with it. A, a safer location would be some third-party secure location, exactly where and, and how, I can't tell you. There are private storage organizations that have very, very secure private storage options uh, that are basically like private vaults, and, and that would be probably the most secure. But they probably are less secure from theft than a bank or a credit union. So I kind of, of the all-of-the-above approach, we take some Bitcoin, we put it here, we take some Bitcoin, we put it there, uh, we store some physical metal on hand, we store some physical metal in safe deposit boxes, we store some cash in safe deposit boxes, some cash on hand, cash in bank accounts, we kind of mix it up and move it around. And that way, uh, it's not just protecting ourselves from uh, the potential that government would go out of hand. That's one reality. That's not on the top of my list. The top of my list is just things going wrong in general, bank not being accessible uh, because a bank holiday is declared or just because power is out and I can't actually use the bank, uh, whereas I still may be able to go to over to a small bank that I have, say, deposit box and uh, eventually gain entry and get into my box and get the physical stuff out of my box. I can certainly get the stuff that's in my own personal control. Uh, to me, this is the all your eggs in one basket thing. I don't think all your eggs belong in one basket. I even think you should have accounts with multiple banks or multiple credit unions. I think it's a great idea to set up basically a basic savings and checking account with a bank you do business with every day. And then pick another bank with the best terms you can get for interest on your savings and put a savings account there. And that's like a cash fund for yourself. And you even can set up so every month a certain amount of money goes into that account from your main bank account. And just keep that one level of separation. You're so much less likely to raid that account 
And it's just another hole into what you put money that you control. And then having a brokerage account with your IRA and your, your other stocks and securities makes sense to me. If you want to make money with silver and gold by trading it, then ETFs are the way to go, not physical metal. If you want gold and silver in an IRA or something like that, then you want ETFs, not physical metal. Physical metal makes no sense in an IRA at all. But check, the TV and the radio say so. Some bald guy told me it did. Gordon something like that, right? He seemed very convincing. Of course he was. He's a paid actor. Okay, but it's G. Gordon Liddy. Yeah, well, I don't care. Here's why. Silver and gold, in physical form, are the most anonymous form of wealth you can have in this country. A tax-sheltered investment vehicle, like an IRA, is the most public form of wealth that you can have. Every radar screen in, in the country has your IRA or your 401k on it. So you've taken the most anonymous form of wealth and you've put it inside something that makes it the most public form of wealth. I just don't think that makes sense. So I think it makes sense to take this balanced approach. Now, I also had a question I'll fill here at the end. Uh, what brand of floor safe would I recommend? The reality is it doesn't matter. There's no such thing as a shitty floor safe. If you have something with four big bolts that go into concrete on, on, on four sides into a sleeve that goes down into concrete, it's as secure as anything else. Um, you want to look at, you know, is it fire rated, that type of thing? Is it watertight? Uh, but if you, assuming you have fire, fire prevention and you have a watertight, uh, safe, uh, you're in good shape. And you're really not gonna have that much trouble with, like, burning down into concrete anyway, right? So, um, the key with that is to find a good installer that'll do the job right and to strategically place the safe at a point where, um, it, it's less likely to be found. Now, th this is why I feel the way I do about the security of the safe. My father used, a, a round, it was like a four inch round, and it was, you know, more than armpit deep to the bottom floor safe for cash at his gas station that he had when I grew up in Florida before we moved to Pennsylvania. And he would, you know, because there's a lot of cash in that type of a business, gas and used tires. So, you know, he'd get a certain amount of cash and you, 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 it had a, 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 like a slot where you could just take like a, a banded, uh, stack of 20s. And just push it through the slot and it would fall down in the safe so you didn't have to open it. And then at certain points he would, you know, making sure everything was secure and safe and times were slow, there wasn't a lot of people around, another person there to keep an eye out would remove cash and then take any that was necessary to run the business and put the rest into the car and take it to the bank and get it deposited. And several times he was uh, robbed at night when, not robbed, I guess burglarized is the right word. He was only robbed twice where somebody actually came in and stuck a gun in his face. And uh, actually three times, because the third time was my grandfather. My grandfather was shot in the arm uh, by a scumbag, uh, though he kind of wore his shirt with the hole in it for the rest of his life with pride. Uh, I guess you don't try to rob a, a, an old man that was a chief warrant officer in World War II without him expecting he'll fight back. Uh, but in these burglaries, uh, I think it was like six over ten years. Um, three times they managed to find the floor safe. You know, and he had sledgehammers around, and they beat the shit out of the concrete, the safe. There was no way to get in. They couldn't get in. They always gave up and, and took whatever they could get and left, which wasn't very much. You know, it would be tools and shit like that that they would take. So if you're looking for a floor safe, I would focus more on finding a good installer that's going to do a good installation job. Check out Angie's List, Craig's List, stuff like that. But see if you can find a place like – this is why I like Angie's List. They have reviews. 
You know, it's find an installer that has, you know, multiple positive reviews. Check out Next Door. Uh, that's what I'll finish up with today. Next Door. I, I haven't talked about this much on, on the air. There's this website. It's called Next Door. And it's like Facebook for your neighborhood is the best way I can describe it. And, and it's been one of the most valuable things that we've found. Um, we found our cats that we have now, uh, uh, Fox and Dana, uh, through a contact on Next Door. We've gotten a free deep freezer. On next door, we've seen countless people recommend service providers and things like that. We found a great uh, kind of handyman slash contractor on next door uh, with real feedback by real neighbors. And I've also seen people say, "Yeah, so and so used to be good, but the last two times we used them, they weren't really you know delivering anymore because it's like this completely uncensored, honest feedback area." And it's it's helped us really know not just our neighbors but the pulse of our neighborhood. Like one of the coolest things on it was last year in spring, we had all this rain that we had in May. And the city of, of Lake Worth posted on next door basically a call out saying, rat out your neighbors if their grass is too high. If grass is more than 12 inches high, uh, just call our office and tell us, and we'll go out and cite that person for being such a scumbag to let their grass grow too tall uh, in, in, in this, this extremely wet weather. So the, the two most common responses were, yeah, there's this place down by the, the, the lake, and there's this highway median, and they, a person would list like 10 places where the grass was too high, and it was all city property. So basically, like, you guys are the ones not doing your own maintenance. And the other one was just, like, bashing the city and saying, hey, don't do this to your neighbors. Who knows what their problem is? They could be sick. They could need help. Go ask them if you can help them. And it made me feel really good to live where I live. So check out Next Door. I'm not promising you'll feel good about where you live, but it's a really great insight into the community around you, and it can be really valuable. And if there isn't one, know this, and it wasn't any of my super marketing powers or anything. When I started on Next Door, there wasn't one here. There was no next door group for my actual neighborhood. There were some surrounding neighborhoods I could see. I set mine up. I sent an invitation to two neighbors that I knew. They make you get 13 to keep your little neighborhood block as a permanent thing. And I got close to the end, and I'm like, I don't know anybody else, guys. We got 12. Somebody get one more. And somebody did. And now we have this major asset to the community because somebody told me about it, and I set it up in a few minutes. So check out Next Door and consider setting one up for your neighborhood if you don't have one already. With that, hope you enjoyed my first show back. I know it went a little bit long, lots of different topics and things like that. Uh, hopefully I'll be feeling better tomorrow and doing an even better job for you on a Friday show. What am I going to do for Friday? It won't be an expert council show. It's not, not the council fault. With all the stuff going on, I haven't gotten their new questions to them. I'll come tomorrow and probably do a call-in show uh, or maybe a standalone show, and we'll be back on a regular scheduled programming beginning Monday. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.